On this episode of Creative Conversations with Generation Jones, we'll talk to actress and drama teacher Kathleen McManus. She's going to tell us about living in Vegas and a ghostly thing that happened in a theater one night. Welcome to Creative Conversations with Generation Jones. We'll be interviewing real people of a certain age who have been living a life of creativity. Real people, not the rich and famous. Mm -hmm. Some do it for a living, and some do it because it fills their soul. But they all have great stories and pearls of wisdom to share. Mm -hmm. So, Maria, before we start, you want to remind everybody what the hell Generation Jones is? Yeah, good question. So Generation Jones, we are the folks that were born right at the end of the baby boom from 1954 to 1965. Mm-hmm. Those of us stuck in the middle of the boomers and Gen X, and we don't really fit into either one. Yeah, we're in our 50s and 60s right now. And we're still tearing it up creatively. Yeah, baby. Hi, everyone. We are here with local Atlanta actress, teacher, director, Fabulous person all around, Kathleen McManus. Welcome, Kathleen. It's lovely to be here with you, and it's wonderful having this brunchy cocktail. Oh, Enjoying good. Well, it tell us much. about this cocktail. What is your favorite cocktail that well, we just made? We are drinking a French 75. So the French 75, it's named after a fast-firing millimeter field gun uh, utilized by the French during World War I. Mm. And it consists of gin, Fresh lemon juice, sugar, and a champagne. Of course, Yum. you cannot have a French drink that yeah. doesn't include champagne. The drink is a lot friendlier than the name implies. So here's how you make <laughs> one French 75. You need one ounce of gin. What is it that we what we're we using use today? Aviation gin, which aviation is Ryan gin. Reynolds' gin. It's, it's quite good. Yummy. One ounce theme. of gin. Uh, now you're going to shake that over ice along with half an ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice, half an ounce of simple syrup. So you want to shake, shake, shake that up. Shake your booty. Uh, you want to strain that into your the prettiest flute you have, basically. <laughs> Anything you're drinking champagne in, that's, that's what you're going to pour this into. Uh, and then you add, you top that off with champagne. So mm-hmm. the recipe calls for three ounces of champagne, but really just... Fill it up. Fill it, yeah. Fill fill up the glass, right? right? And you garnish it with a lemon twist. It's time to Cheers. Mm. Mm. Quite delicious. Okay. Oh, yum. So now I'm ready. Mm. Now Mm. that we're Mm. primed. Oh, yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Prime the pump. All right. So we always do ask this question just because we do. What did you want to be when you were a kid? This is the truth. I wanted to be Cary Grant's fifth wife. (laughs) That's not a lie. Uh, That was my sole ambition from the time I saw bringing up baby late at night one night when I was watching a little black and white TV that I wasn't supposed to be watching. uh, And I just... I fell in love with 37-and-a-half-year-old Cary Grant. <laughs> and, you know, I really didn't aspire toward anything else for many years, I have to say. That's so did you, you watched story. a lot of, obviously watched a lot of television when you were a kid. I, Generation Jones, right? Yeah, we were baby. parked in front of the TV set. It was our babysitter. It was our comforter. It was our education box. It was, you know, where we learned the dirty jokes and the innuendo. <laughs> it was everything. So. And where did you grow up? I grew up in a neighborhood called Gentilly 
in New Orleans, Louisiana, and then we moved to New Orleans East, uh, and I spent most of the first 20 years of my life in New Orleans. With one exception, I spent one school year, seventh grade, in Las Vegas, and this was in um, the 1969-70 school year, so it was still Frankie's Vegas in those years. Oh, oh, awesome. yeah. That was my childhood. Oh, blue eyes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So stories from Las Vegas, from from seventh grade in Las Vegas. <laughs> got any? Uh, let's see. We got taken to see one show. So the story of Las Vegas is my mother, we called ourselves the dysfunctional Brady Bunch. Um, <laughs> my mother and my stepdad uh, had been out there for about a year. His three kids and her three kids, literally no joke. He had a son and two daughters. My Mother also has a son and two daughters. We were summoned. We had been living quite happily with grandma and grandpa and spending weekends with daddy and his girlfriend, and we were yanked into the desert (laughs) uh, the summer of 1969. Uh, So my mom was a cocktail waitress who worked all night, and my dad was, uh, my stepdad uh, was a crap dealer. So the very first thing we had to learn how to do basically was get out of the house and stay away all day Mm. so they could sleep. Mm -hmm. So we would go to the pool, which was nearby. It was at Roy Martin Junior High, where I promptly made an enemy of a girl and she terrorized (laughs) Uh me the whole school year. One of the reasons I was like, I'm not coming back here. Um, After I went home, I was like, I cannot tolerate another year of terrorizing me. Um, So yeah, so we spent way too much time in the sun that summer. It was still the Las Vegas of the Stardust and the Riviera and the Sands. So not much had changed since the 40s. This was also true of New Orleans. It's like the New Orleans I grew up in was the New Orleans of the 40s. So we were, Generation Jones was kind of the last generation Mm -hmm. to um, get to appreciate what the city looked like from that Iteration of, and you lived of its with existence. your grandparents in in. Uh, I lived off and on and... with grandparents. Yeah, I, I let's see. I let, mom and dad were a nuclear unit until I was about ten, and we had always spent a lot of time with grandparents because my mother and dad didn't like each other, and so they would <laughs> go <laughs> off and do different things on weekends, and we would get farmed out. You wow. know, right. yeah. So my dad had a stepmom. I had three grandmothers growing up, and actually lived with my maternals for about a year and a half. In New Orleans? Um, after the divorce in yeah. New Orleans. They were lifesavers. They really were uh, because my parents were quite chaotic. Uh, they were young. They were teenagers who, you know, they didn't, they did not, they still didn't know what they wanted to be when they grew <laughs> up. <laughs> and we were sort of like, hello, it's time for dinner. And then there were uh, kids. Yeah, and then, then, they were, kids. then they were kids. Do you want to tell the story of your parents meeting? Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah. yeah, you know, New Orleans is famous for Desire Street, a streetcar named Desire taking place in the city of New Orleans. My father happened to grow up on Desire Street. That's the streetcar the named Desire real, the about streetcar, a street in New Orleans? That's exactly oh, right. I did not it's know It's not a metaphor. See, everything in New Orleans is a metaphor made manifest. Oh. And this is something that Tennessee okay. Williams understood. Desire Street's that's... a real street. Okay, And it goes east to west, you know, uh, between a crescent in the river and the lake. Burgundy, as we say, Burgundy Street or Burgundy, as we say in New Orleans, is a street that goes north-south. So my mother grew up in Burgundy and my dad grew up in Desire. And my parents, they were on a bus. They were on the Desire bus. <laughs> and this was in 1956. And my, mo- my mom was English and Filipino. And she was very beautiful, dark, exotic, 
when my dad was Irish and Italian. He looked very, very Irish, and she looked very, very Filipino. And she, my dad's on the bus with his buddy Horace. My daddy's name was Danny. Danny McManus. It's a great name. <laughs> Danny McManus. He was That's very popular. very and Irish. They, so very Irish, Irish yes. name. Yep. Yeah, and he, and he knew how to whistle and play the harmonica to Danny Boy. Oh, you better believe. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And he was quite the charmer. He was what the Irish call a darling man, right? Oh, he had, yeah. He <laughs> had inherited that... The gift of the gab, the gift of gab, and was quite the charmer. I miss him a lot. So he's like 17, and he's sitting on the Desire bus with his best buddy, Horace. I didn't get this story out of my dad (laughs) until maybe 20 years ago, so I didn't know the story for a long, long time. And one day I was like, you're going to tell me the story of how you met my mother because, oh, my God, y'all were a disaster. (laughs) Why? And so he said, and and he had this lovely way of telling the story. He said, "Your mama got on the bus." <laughs> I said, "The Desire bus." He said, "Yeah, the Desire bus." I said, "Where were you heading?" He says, "We were heading to WNOE. We had both won a most popular boy and girl at our school. My dad was going to a a school called Coriezu, which is now known as Brother Martin." an all-boy Catholic high school. Mm-hmm. Catholic high schools are derogare in New Orleans. Mm. I, I didn't get to go one, but I should have gotten to go one. <laughs> My sister-in-law went to one. Everybody I know went to one. But Aww. anyway, I didn't get to go Aww. to a Catholic high school. So my dad was at Coriezu when my mother went to Nichols, Governor Nichols, which was the public school in that neighborhood, known as the Ninth Ward. People now call it the Faubourg, the Bywater. That's where they grew up. So my mom gets on the bus and my daddy pokes uh, Horace, and he goes, look at that. Horace says, that meat's too dark for me. I mean, this is how boys talked about girls back in the 50s, right? Ooh, yeah. And my daddy looked at him like, are you crazy? She's beautiful, you know? And my daddy says, oh, man, she looked like she was dipped in peanut butter. Oh, oh, my God. So they're talking to about her like she's like she food. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Well, she gets off and they get off and they're going to the same location. <gasps> oh, they're going to WNOE <laughs> to start to participate in this uh, most popular boy and girl initiative, whatever it was that was going on. WNOE was one of the popular radio stations in those days. And my dad had aspirations to be in radio. And that's, you know, and he must have walked up to her and, you know, and introduced himself because he was really good at that. And about nine and a half months later, (laughs) (laughs) and not long after they got married, um, I was born. Interesting. That's the story of my dad meeting my mom on the Desire bus. So I like to say I was an accident at the corner of Desire and Burgundy (laughs) 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 because it's true. And that's a metaphor made manifest. So did you uh, go to college? And if you did, did you study drama in college? I did, but it took a long time. I went to three colleges over 20 years. Wow. Okay, whatever it takes. (laughs) In and out, in and out. Right. I went to UNO, University of New Orleans. So I was a dropout from the University of New Orleans. And then I was a dropout from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. (laughs) And, And then I was an autodidact for many years. And, uh, Can you define that for us, please? Autodidact yes, is somebody please. who is self-taught. Oh, okay. okay. And so I was always seeking out, you know, right. ways to um, to, to study the craft yeah. and to learn. And I read plays all the time. Every time I could get my hands on a play, I would read one. Um, and then years later in my 30s with a baby on my hip 
and a husband who uh, is, was, at the time it is still a a college professor. I finally finished my studies at University of Georgia. So go dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Woof, woof. But it took twenty <laughs> it took twenty years. It took twenty, yeah. 20 years. <laughs> but you did it. You did, I did it. it. I did it. <laughs> uh, so what did you study in college? What did you or what did you get that final degree in? First time around I studied education. Second time around I was just taking acting classes at UNLV and meeting people. I met my first husband while I was he wasn't going to UNLV, but I met him at a in a in a casino coffee shop at like two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um and and I have a BA in drama. It's just a Bachelor of Arts. Right. In the subject of drama. Okay. Now you you used the word when we were talking before, cineliterate. Yeah, I'm a that, well, and I learned that, that the yeah. word cineliterate means that you acquire your literacy through the cinema, and this was a term coined by a UGA professor. He he just left us, uh, bless his soul, Dr. Charlie Idzvik. Dr. Idzvik taught cinema at UGA, and I took a class with him. And, be, and being Generation Jones, I mean, he had wrote a book about, it's called Cineliteracy. Hmm. And he was mostly talking about baby boomers, but especially us. The dog. The dog. It's a dog. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. No, Uh-oh. dog Sorry. The I'm dog like all this. I'm like, oh my God. It's okay. always a dog. Okay. Um, sorry. I will the dogs are always I'll here. put the champagne bottle, baby. There you go. Have to pick it up for another swig. <laughs> <laughs> sipsy. Anyway, uh, Cineliterate means um, that generation of boomers who... Oh my God! <laughs> and now she smells it. The smell just hit. It just hit me. Let's do a little Sorry. fan. Anyway, stand by a second, please. Life with dogs, I miss yeah. it. Except moments like Except those. Except for that. Um, and every dog does it. Not again. Don't do that again. Look, he's the dog. He's sniffing. Like he sniffs it now too. <laughs> like who? Who did me? that? Like <laughs> he's a dog. Or maybe it was the one sitting under the table. It's probably Winston oh, it's under the table. One at the table. He's maybe. old. Oh my goodness. No. Um, so cine literacy implies that you acquired your sense of literacy from the tube, either the mm. boob tube or the big screen or or what have you. And it was true of me. And I and I noticed that immediately. Um, when I learned the word, I was like, Oh my god, yeah. I always saw the film before I read the book. Ah. I mean, and if they didn't make a movie out of it, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't read that book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you're not alone in that. Yeah. <laughs> not alone. Yeah. There's just a whole pantheon of literature that I don't know because there's no movie to, to go with it. <laughs> so what was your first job in theater? My very first job in theater was I was hired by Eddie and the Southern Theater Conspiracy to be a house manager for a production called Mirandolina Unchained. (laughs) And I met some wonderful folk. The terrific comic actress Stephanie Astalis-Jones was starring as Mirandolina and some other folk whose names now escape me. But I had was so lucky to fall in with some theater people almost immediately from moving back to Atlanta in the summer of 82. Like I met everybody right away. And I just, it was like, this is where you belong. At that period of time too, it was a much smaller community. It was smaller in the so early it 1980s. Was, you know, yeah. And but, so meeting people was kind of was easy. Easier. If you went to yeah. Manny's, you met yeah, people you in the Manny's, theater. Right, and yeah, that's how I did everybody. Right. <laughs> and then you will meet everybody. And it was true. Oh, my God. So talk us through what happened after that, when you got to Atlanta. In the summer of 82, Atlanta was just on my mind. Georgia was on my mind. Georgia. (laughs) It was like, don't go home to New York. I was in Las Vegas, and my first marriage was ending. 
I just felt like a shriveled up prune in the desert. I had family there. I had no reason to leave except I just couldn't see myself spending the rest of my life in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I saved $2,000. I went, I went home to live with my dad for a little while. I saved two grand like as if I was a duchess. I have $2,000. I can move now. <laughs> I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything. <laughs> I had nothing. Yeah, but back then, you know, you could rent an apartment. It was like 150 well, bucks a month. Or, right. You know, it, I, like... you know, as long as you found other people that you could rent yeah, with. Yeah. Um, so I came back in the summer of 82 and I met people, basically UGA folk. These were all people who had studied with Dr. Gus Staub who had become very instrumental in my own education later on. Remember the creative loafing? Mm -hmm. Oh my God! Oh, and you, yeah. you got it. Oh, oh, yeah. and so you just yeah. went to the loaf. Yep. And you found out what auditions were happening. And I started auditioning, and I ended up being cast in a production of Dark of the Moon, which was again happening at Onstage Atlanta. And nobody was getting paid very much for anything in those days. This was, you know, before we had equity cards and all that stuff. Locally, equity certainly existed. But I was just lucky. I just I just met everybody I needed to meet, and they were like, no, 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 girl. You need to go over here. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need... And I would just follow people's – either people just sort of took me on it as a project. Evolves, yeah. yeah, it just it evolves. Just evolves yeah. It just evolves. It, it just evolves. So were you acting? Were you going from show to show acting? What were you doing? Oh, well, you go from show to show until you don't go from show to show. It's, it's, it's feast or famine. You know, you get a show, and then did you, you ever do enough audition, shows audition, that you audition. could just do that, or did you always have no, <laughs> no, 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 no. And even if I was going from show to show, I haven't. I've had a couple of seasons in my career where it was like, wow, you were going from show to show to show. But I had a job too, you know, mm -hmm. uh, mostly waiting tables in those days. But um, no, I didn't. I didn't support myself as an actor. I always had to like the first thing you do is. You get a job, and then you look at what what's going on right. in the world of theater. Yeah, you, you figure um, out how to support yourself first, right, right. and exactly. then you do what you really what you want to do. Exactly. Yeah. Pause a second and have a have a sip. Yes. A this sip. is our pause, our refrement our pause. pause. Our refreshment Here we go. Pause. Mm. If you need to refill, mm. refill. Mm. So good. Oh, we mean yes. Add a splash of uh, champagne. Who wants more champagne? Who doesn't want champagne. more champagne? Thank you, darling. And when did you get married? What would that you married Johnny? When First time I Johnny? got married was in 1979. Well, that was that one. We're not going to count that one. That was my starter marriage. That was my starter marriage. Your starter marriage. Yeah, I your married, practice marriage. I married uh, John Ammerman in um, the summer of 1985. Okay. Yeah. And then how long was it until you had your child? 1989. 1989. Okay. How, so, so how did that change everything for you professionally? Oh, you know it changes everything. Well, yeah, it changes everything. Did you drag him to rehearsals and things? I mean, sure, I but that was a little a little bit later. Stuff, yeah, I didn't do anything for about a year and a half. Actually, I was on stage pregnant. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I guess I'm one of the few actresses who get who has. Yeah, I was pregnant on stage when I discovered I was pregnant. I was a company member at the Academy Theater. And this is when they were in that space that was built for them. I was with them from the year before they got that space at the corner that is in infamous for being uh, the corner where Margaret Mitchell was hit by the, hit by a cab. Oh! <laughs> yeah. And that was, a, yeah, I'm sorry. It shouldn't be funny. It's not funny. It's not, it's funny. not funny. It's tragic. It's not funny. <laughs> well, we're really not laughing at her. We're not, we're not laughing. We're not, really. But, you know, Frank Witzow would say it all the time. You know, this is a corner where Margaret Mitchell got hit by a cab. We got, yeah, Frank, we know. Um, it, 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 
she'd apparently <laughs> come out of a movie theater, and that movie theater then fell on very hard times, became yeah. a triple X house, and then it was the Academy Theater for a while. Okay. And when the Campanile, when AT&T, or the Ma Bells, before AT&T was, when it was still Baby Bell Bells, South, yeah. Baby Bells, yeah. wanted that corner... The academy had been bequeathed to that corner, I think, by the city of <laughs> the city or the county or something. It was like, well, you know, we rent this place for about a dollar a year. Okay, we'll build you a theater. So that's how that what became to be known yeah. as the Fourteenth Street Playhouse was built. And for four seasons, it was the Academy Theater, which is why they still have there's this ghost of the the neon that looks like a bird in flight. <laughs> you know? Anyway, for many years it was like. I can still see where that neon used to be. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, when I got pregnant in the summer of 88, we were about to start rehearsals for Les Liaisons Dangereux, and I was a company member. So I got bigger and bigger <laughs> <laughs> in the first trimester. And then we did A Christmas Carol, and I was just a pregnant, you know, Victorian in, in that production. And I was right. about six or seven months pregnant. It probably worked I in was, Christmas Carol, right? It probably didn't teaching? matter. When did you start teaching? At, at the Academy. At Actually, the Academy? Okay. It, was, it was Barbara who taught me how to be a theater teacher. If you became a company member with the Academy Theater, who I, I, I suppose Atlantans would know has been around since the 1950s. But in those days, it had a resident company. And if you were going to be a resident company member, you had to learn how to teach. Interesting. You had to teach okay. something. Hmm. Or you were not going to be a company member. Um, and but who I were you teaching? Were you, were you teaching the I other? I was teaching teenagers okay. mostly. Um, so I, I had been studying with Johnny, most particularly pantomime. I had I had learned pantomime skills, so I could do. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Get out of the box. Reverse, out of the box. Out of the box. <laughs> reverse movement technique. And and I taught it the way John Ammerman taught it to me. And and. Um, he taught adults and I taught kids. Uh, so that was one of the first things I taught. And then I became comfortable enough to teach a scene class or a mm -hmm. monologue class. And so really it was the academy that turned me into a teacher. And you continued teaching. And I continued teaching, yeah. yeah. And you still teach today. Yes. For another 90 another days. Another 90 <laughs> days. Wow. And where are you teaching right now? You teach at a... Uh, a I'm at Woodward Academy okay. down in College Park. I've been there since the fall of 2007. So this is my 15th year. Wow. Um, okay. I, I, in another life, I was the education director for Georgia Shakespeare. Right. For almost a decade. And I'm about to um, retire. Yeah. Full-time teaching. And what, what have you been teaching at Woodward? I've taught a little bit of everything. At, at, at first, I taught grades 7 through 12. So I would meet drama. them of drama, 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 right, okay, drama. drama. That was what I was asking. So, yeah, and okay. but, yeah. but we have to unpack drama. what do we mean by that, and, yeah. and and that means a lot of things. It means theater history. It means scene study. It means you know monologue prep. It means yeah. it means uh, you know putting on a play. It means dramaturgy. It means a lot of things. So, what was it like trying to teach that during COVID? It was horrible. Because just like any other teacher, I had very little time to make the pivot to Zoom, the Zoom classroom, mm -hmm. like one day, literally one day. And that's not a lie. That's oh, serious. That's not, that's not hyperbole. We had one day of training oh my God. in, wow. in, in wow. mid-March 2020. And so you don't, you know, it's a lot of unknown unknowns, to borrow a term from politics. You don't know what you don't know mm -hmm. until you come across it. And then, of, so, so you're, 
it's just like being a nonprofit. You're always putting out a fire, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah. there was one quarter of that and then a summer of uncertainty, followed by a year, all of last year, a whole school year of hybrid mode. Hybrid mode mm. is oh, a Frankenstein beast. <laughs> which means you're working double time. <laughs> That's right, yeah. which means you have students in the classroom and also students online, and you're trying your best to integrate the two which, because it's theater, you, you, you're going to try to do that more, many, many more unknown unknowns. A totally different way to misbehave in the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, then your IT person will inform you and you're like, really? Because I didn't see that. Because how can I see that if everybody's looking at a different screen? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Insane. Then a summer of, oh, I'm vaccinated, and then, oh, forget that, because whatever, right, right Omicron right. comes along. Mm. So when we came back in the fall, we were promised there would be no more hybrid. Well, guess what? We're, we're back in hybrid mode. But it's really just a kid here, a kid there, a yeah. kid here, mm. a kid yeah. there. So what did you do like during COVID? I know all the theaters closed down. Tell me a little bit of what you did to keep yourself creative during COVID, but when you couldn't do theater. I realized that I had this bagatelle of stories that I needed to write down that were just, you know, burning in my memory. And so just to, to keep myself from going insane, I started to create these, what I call tales from the ghost light. And I would just reach in my memory, you know, just keep myself sharp, just keep the memory sharp, really. And, and because I like to write as well, I would recall a memory from the theater. It could be a teaching memory. Mm -hmm. These were all production memories, but it could be either from my educational life or my other life, my semi-professional life. <laughs> would you read some of these to us? I would be happy to. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Absolutely. And before you do that, just, just in case anybody doesn't know, tell us what the ghost light is. A ghost light is, especially in traditional theaters, so you're thinking the proscenium stage, the picture frame, it gets very, very dark in a theater. Once you turn all the lights off, you can't see. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And so a stage manager is typically the last person to leave. They will bring a light. It looks, it almost looks like an old-fashioned microphone, the, the, the mm. shape of the light. Usually has a cage around it because it's pretty hot on a rather, you know, tall mic type stand. And it's always got this long cord, right? It has to be plugged <laughs> into the wall. And they will bring it dead center stage and turn the light on. And then all of the lights can go off. Now it's, it's not an unsafe space, as they say. So the ghost light keeps the light burning um, on stage while all the other lights are off. And it came to be a, a bit of a metaphor for Theaters are going to close now, and we don't know when they're going to open again. So how long can we keep this ghost light burning? Mm. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. And now Kathleen McManus will read from Tales of the Ghost Light. Dun, dun, dun. Tales of the Ghost Light, number two. The Man in the White Suit Comes to a Play by Terence McNally. In the year 2000, I was fortunate to perform in the Tony-winning play Masterclass by Terence McNally produced by Palmer Wells and directed by the extraordinary and exacting Jesse Phelps West. Jesse could tell if you were shooting her the bird after a vexing but necessary note because she had eyes in the back of her head. It was a tight ship, that show, and Theater in the Square was a coveted gig with many weeks of work and approximately 40 performances to its long runs. You really got to know a story from the inside out, one night, deep into the run, I am rounding the bend to an Act One break, 
Callus's gorgeous voice accompanying a brilliant spoken aria that must reach key points at specific times in the score of La Sonambula. All other actors are frozen on stage, but the piano player at the keyboard was taking everything in. When I spy a gentleman in a white suit and hat coming down the house right vom, which was always visible to actors on that peculiar stage, presumably heading for the John, the nerve of that guy, I think to myself. As we break, I turn to the piano player, whose eyes are as big as saucers, and before I could get the entire effrontery out, he says, Kath, that was Michael. By which he meant the late Michael Horn, co-founder of Tits, or I should say Theater in the Square, but we lovingly referred to it the other way, and the life partner to Palmer. I slanted my eyes and pursed my lips and looked for the man in the Panama hat as I maneuvered my way through Act Two. To no avail, he seemed to have vanished. Now I'm rounding the bend on the second spoken aria, this one spoken under Macbetto, another soprano frozen on the stage, just me as Callis and Ari and the house. When I turned to spy in a chair up left, a giant sparkler of white light energy. It gave off a warm glow, and it was all I could do to keep talking, to stay in character, turning my focus again on the piano player, whose eyes, once again, are big as saucers. In that moment, I knew that what he had said was true. Michael, who dearly loved that theater and who had left a list of plays he wanted to see produced, master class upon it, was paying us a visit. I never met Michael Horn in life, but one extraordinary night I shared a stage with him, oh so briefly, it is my fervent wish that, if there is a Valhalla, an Elysian fields for theater makers, Mr. Horn and Mr. McNally are talking shop. Till we meet again, my mentors. Well, that was wonderful. That Thank was you really good. so yes. much. All right, Kathleen, tell us about Arish Theater. Arish, which is a Gaelic word that means encore, spelled A-R-I-S, but not pronounced Aris. It's pronounced Arish uh, is about to enter, I believe next year is its 10th anniversary. We incorporated in 2013. It's a theater that exists to tell Celtic stories. So we like to say we are Atlanta's stage for Celtic culture. Ah. So we explore the dramatic literature of England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales with a heavy emphasis on the Irish. And our most recent production was a steampunk adaptation, which I created and directed, adaptation of The Importance of Being Earnest, mm. which really lends itself quite well to um, the steampunk sensibility. And next up for Arish in uh, the summer, in June, sometime around Bloomsday, is an adaptation of James Joyce's Ulysses by Dermot Bulger. And this is going to be at seven stages. So mm, be on the lookout. We are mm. happy to be back. We, of course, took a pause during the pandemic, but we are back. Arish is back. Excellent. Excellent. And where is it located? Well, we're a homeless theater company, which means that wherever we lay our hat is our home. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next production coming up is going to be at seven stages in Little Five Points. Are you happy with how your career has gone? I am happy with how my career has gone. You know, I, I was always one of those people who sort of made fun of five-year plans because every time I was in the midst of an organization that had a five-year plan, 
something of that like 9-11 would happen. And right, right. Yeah, that's right. Right. Like, There's always yeah, a Yeah, that five-year plan's right. not going to work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, growing up scrappy, growing up working class, which is how I grew up, I, I didn't have a plan. I mean, yeah. Somebody who wants to be Cary Grant's fifth wife doesn't <laughs> have a plan. Well, that is a plan. Trust but, me. Know. Well, Maybe not it's an aspiration. Yes. <laughs> and it means you, you you probably have some pipe dreams in there. But I, I had no strategy for how I was going to meet Cary Grant. So, you know. I'll never forget. After I met Johnny, we got married in 85. I suffered from endometriosis for a few, for most of my 20s and was lucky to conceive in my early 30s because it is a leading cause of infertility because it got really bad. I, w- I was having what I called the roto-rooter, right? <laughs> and um, this is before we had Liam. So this is right. This, this was happening the week that Cary Grant died. So I'm Aww. literally, I'm at Grady Hospital. You were like, darn it, it'll uh, never yeah, happen exactly, now. Exactly. <laughs> I was recovering from this surgery. It was actually major surgery. And my sweet husband, he comes into the room. He's got this newspaper. You remember newspapers? He's got this newspaper folded. And I'm like, oh, it's so great to see you. Come and give me a kiss. And he's got this really dire look on his face. And he unfolds the paper. And I can see Cary Grant dead at however old he was, 82. And I screamed. And I just collapsed on the bed. So John and I have now known each other for 40 years, right? And we have this long history of one of us having to tell the other that somebody died and listening to the other wail inconsolably. But it was, yeah, I was inconsolable the rest of the day while I was trying to prepare my body for having a baby sometime. Not Cary Grant's baby, we have to say. But um, I'll never forget that because he was so sweet. It was like, I hate to be the bearer of this news, but you have to know this, my love. Your first love has died. (laughs) Anyway. So can you tell us what advice would you give to young people starting out in this career, wanting to be actors, wanting to go into the theater, what would you tell them? I think most people who want to be actors nowadays have a lot more savvy than I did um, and probably have a five-year plan. (laughs) And so I I think my advice to them is be willing to chuck the plan for, uh, you know, the Cockneys used to have an expression, you got to look for the main chance, right? Seeking (laughs) the main chance. When a door opens, you just got to walk through it. Grab it. it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. You got to grab it. Yeah, and you have to know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And if just because it's not on your list doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Um, you know, so take advice from somebody who never, who just went, okay, uh, okay, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, I'll do that now. Uh, that sometimes that's not a bad plan to be, be very flexible. I mean, I think so much about people who are in college right now as the pandemic, it's like their lives have been so put on hold. Yeah. 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 Talk about having to learn what flexibility is Mm -hmm. and try to figure something else Mm -hmm. out. Um, In 10 years time, we'll be telling people, you need to think like those kids were thinking back in the pandemic. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right? That they were going to be flexible (laughs) um, while their lives were put on hold. So what are your plans moving forward? I have an agent, and I've never given myself the opportunity to be a true freelance, 
theater artist, teaching artist, whatever. I'm, I think I want to, I don't think I want to teach for a while. I think I've, I've sort of had all the teaching I can eat um, for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've done a couple of on-camera projects, but I've never pursued it. So I have just enough to create a real and I think I, I'm going to pursue on-camera auditioning. Well, this is the place to do it. It certainly There's is. There's a ton of work here you know, in Atlanta now. It people is the talked Hollywood about, of the South. People yeah. talked yeah. about it back in the 80s, but now it has really yep. exploded. Yeah. And, and I want to have fun just pursuing it. I don't want to care yep. whether mm -hmm. I book it, as they say. Mm -hmm. I just want to go out and, and have fun exploring what the pursuit of it is. I think you'll do really well. Is like. I think and you'll do really well. Thank you, It'll Social be, Security, you know. for making this possible. <laughs> well, and mm -hmm. retiring. You get retirement it, it, from yeah, teaching exactly. as well. So you don't have to worry about, you know. I ha and I have a tiny little pension from Actors' Equity. I, I had my equity card, my AEA card, just long enough to be vested. And I if I pull the trigger on that in a few months, uh, I will have just enough to pay the cable bill. Ah. Right. <laughs> Well, and your husband still works, so you, yes, you he have does. two incomes That's in your true. house. That's true. I am in a two-income mm -hmm. family, but I've always tried to pull my weight. In 90 days, you'll have time. In 90 days. 90 days, baby. 90 days. 90 days. 90 days. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I think this is day 89, actually. There you go. 89 days. Woohoo! Should we have a, well, a refresh yes, our drink? Let's have a refresh your drink. And Kathleen, this has been a wonderful interview, but before you go... We're going to play a little game. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh. Mm, very brief game. A little brief game. Mm -hmm. And we're going to say phrases or words is that were a, used. Is a, are you really a Jen, are, yeah, Jen yeah, Jones? Jen Jones? <laughs> okay. So these are words and phrases from okay. actually from the 60s through now. And I want you to tell me what era you think it came from. Okay. 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 And they're not that hard. Mm -mm. They're fun. No. Okay, so the first one is Bogart. Okay, well, that's from the 70s, either 1969 or straight up early 70s. Yeah. Don't Bogart that joint, my friend. friend. That's right. Wow, you <laughs> got it. I did not know that. Chikorina, man. Right? Let's, girl. let's talk. Girl. Oh, girl. Oh, I missed that. I was a bad girl. So yeah. was I. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, number two, a scrub. A, a scrub. scrub. Mm -hmm. That perhaps is a regionalism that I never caught mm -hmm. in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. So Who's do that? You, okay, do you know? Okay, so it's actually from around 2000, and it means a guy who thinks he's fly. Do you remember that song? I don't want no I scrub. I don't want no scrub. No. I do not. I was okay. raising okay. a child well, in the yeah, year 2000. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Watching a lot of Disney movies. All right, you'll yeah. know this one. Keep on trucking. Oh yeah, keep on trucking. That's from the seventies. That was mm -hmm. a famous poster, and I can, I can, I can even, I can even, yeah, yep. with the yep. foot sticking That's out. Right. The That's right. With the foot yeah. sticking That's right. Out. That's right. Uh, okay. Big, big shoes and, and bigger pants. Yeah. Uh -huh. Keep yeah. on trucking. Next one. Okay, butter. 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 Oh, that's either Paula Dean or oh, that easy like butter. But what era yeah, did that come era? from? Yeah, it's butter. Yeah, it's uh, smooth. It's butter. The nineties, maybe mm. the early aughts. Is that like a Sopranos? Could be, but we have thing? it as the eighties. We yeah, have we it. We got it from the eighties. Smooth and gold, smooth and good. Yeah, from the eighties. Okay, and one more. 
All that in a bag of chips. All that in a bag of chips. You know, I'm familiar with that, but I don't know what era that comes from. That's from the 90s. Okay. We're going to give you one last. Well, a bonus. <laughs> bonus question. Because I'm failing okay. this test. Because you're failing so badly. <laughs> okay, now you need to get this one because you're a teacher of current teenagers, okay? okay. So okay. keep that well, in your you mind. You just told her. Oh, oh I did. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. Damn, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, okay. Right. Ooh, rewind, rewind. Okay. See if she knows what okay. I mean. Yeah. Okay, see if you. On fleek. On fleek. Mm-hmm. On fleek. What the what what in the what? What the what? what? No. To, on to, fleek. To, to quote Homer Simpson, what what, what in the what what? <laughs> what is on fleek? On fleek means, okay, it, it started to describe eyebrows. Okay. The eyebrows are, were on fleek. Oh, those eyebrows are on fleek, right? girl. And, and now it's like anything no. that looks great, like from about 2010 to current. Okay. No. no. On fleek no. means you, on fleek. Are, you got it going on. No, I was taking a nap okay, when that became well, a thing. All right. Well, <laughs> it was a fun little game, but we tried. <laughs> Okay, so let's have a sip of drink. A little sip of a drink. Thank you for being our guest. We appreciate you being here. I had a wonderful time. All right. right. You're going to have to call me a cab now. Oh, yeah. You're a cab. You're a cab. Oh, God. (laughs) In our next show, we talk with illustrator Trevor Irvin. He may not know how to make a cocktail, but his political cartoons are brilliant. And brutal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on social media. And as my Aunt Millie said, shoulders, shoulders back, back, knockers, knockers up. up. Cheers. Cheers.